I got a friend who goes to Hope to let me borrow his car, and I picked up Hope's founding pastor to get some answers. I bought you a little present. Is this your car? <laughs> no, it's not my car. I work at Hope. After our pit stop at Chick-fil-A, where Mike may or may not have gotten crumbs all over the seat of the nicest car I'll ever drive, the conversation continued about what drives us at Hope. We continued to talk about these five indicators or five marks of a growing follower of Jesus. I asked Mike to give me an example of what it looks like to serve selflessly. Thank you. Thanks, bud. Thank you. If you peel out of the Chick-fil-A drive-thru, I will love my life. Mm. Oh, did you get a straw? Oh, <laughs> so serve selflessly. I've got some people in mind, but I bet you've got better stories. I always think of my sister and brother-in-law. They helped me start the church. They actually left the only church they had ever known. It's the church my sister and I were both born in. So she grew up in that same legal oh, yeah. state. Yeah. yeah. And when I moved here from California, I called them and asked them if they would help me start the church. And they said yes, but then they told me after I got here, we never we never thought you would actually do it. That's why we said yes. <laughs> Since the day we've opened, 25 years ago, they have served. They've never taken time off. They've never taken a break. I mean, they go on vacation like anybody else, but if there's a need and they can take care of it, uh, they serve and they serve for Kid City for 25 years. And my brother-in-law just retired and now he serves several days a week just at the church, volunteering, building sets and stages and fixing up things around the properties and things like that. There's just the heart of a servant there. I'm not eating Chick-fil-A in a loaner car. That's worth more than most houses. <laughs> that was insane. <laughs> Way too much fun. Well, this is the fourth week of our series that we're calling How, Why, and What. And if you were here last weekend, we talked about the fact that as Christians, Jesus wants us not just to be disciples. He wants us to be disciples that make other disciples. Remember the Great Commission, Matthew 28, verse 19? Who was he talking to? He was talking to the disciples. It was right before they went to heaven. He, what did he say? Go and make disciples. In other words, reproduce yourself. It's not just about addition, it's multiplication. And that's actually reflected in our mission statement here at Hope. Love people where they are. That's the how. We want to accept people, love them in our life, regardless of what's going on in their life. But we don't want them to stay where they are. We want to encourage them to grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ. We, we want their lives to be changed. That's the why. And we really believe if those two things come together, the what begins to describe what our lives will look like as disciples. And if you were here last weekend, we said that at Hope we have five goals or five marks or five indicators that basically tell us that we are becoming disciples who are busy making other disciples. Let me just give them to you again. We're to live obediently, and we talked about that last weekend. This weekend, we're going to see that we're to serve selflessly, we're to give generously. We're to share willingly our story of how Jesus Christ has trans changed and transformed our life. And then we're to connect intentionally. In other words, we get in, we get in clusters with other people. There's iron sharpening iron. It's a great opportunity for us to grow, to become disciples, uh, to find out how God's word really works and how it applies to our life. Not only that, we find out that we can do more together as a group than we can do as individuals. And when those things begin to happen, you got to understand 
as Christians, that's when we begin to experience the abundant life that Jesus talked about in John chapter 10. That's where we find happiness. That's where we find joy. That's where we find peace. That's where we find purpose. That's where we find fulfillment. That's where we find the life that Christ designed for us to live. I got this uh, email this week. I wanted to share it with you. Uh, A young lady wrote me. She said, you probably don't remember me, but I am the girl that ran up to you in the airport about a year ago because my boyfriend accepted Jesus into his heart after your message one Sunday. Well, guess what? Ever since then, our lives have changed. We had plans to move in together, which we ended up deciding against. We were sexually active, but now we aren't. We have grown so much closer than ever since our relationship started to mirror a godly relationship. Just a reminder that you only find true happiness when you're living obediently to God's word. But then she writes, also, with a bunch of O's in capital letters, I had the pri- no uh-oh here, no uh-oh here. <laughs> I had the privilege of baptizing him a few weeks ago, and capital letters, the best part, all caps, is that now we are engaged in getting married next summer. Now, this is what she says. I truly believe that if we had moved in together, we would not even be close to getting married. I want to thank you for continually preaching how God designed relationships. I hope our story can somehow help someone else in their journey. But that's a great example of when you do it God's way, God brings incredible happiness. Now, this weekend, we're going to talk about serving uh, selflessly. And when it comes to this area of serving selflessly, I'm going to be honest with you, Jesus was pretty clear on this issue. There's a lot of clarity, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time this weekend trying to convince you that you should serve selflessly. In fact, Jesus really summed it up in just a couple of verses. First of all, he said in Matthew chapter 20, verse 26, whoever wants to become great, okay, I think I'd want to be great, right? Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. So Jesus says, if you want to be great from my perspective, if you want to be great in my kingdom, you got to be a servant. you got to serve people. And then John chapter 13, this is the upper room, the last Passover meal Jesus had with the disciples. And, and, you know, he's getting ready to go to the cross. He's got all this pressure. Judas is getting ready to betray him. But Luke tells us the disciples, they're on a different wavelength because they're arguing about Who is going to sit on his right and who's going to sit on his left and who's going to be the greatest when he sets up his kingdom? And they're going back and forth about it and chicken bones are flying across the table because they're not getting along. And so sometime during the meal, Jesus gets up, takes off his outer robe, gets a basin of water and a towel, and he goes around and washes all 12 of the disciples' feet. He comes back and sits down, and this is what he says in John 13, verse 14. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, by the way, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet. In other words, I've served you. You also should wash one another's feet. You also should have the heart of a servant. Now notice this. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. And then he even includes a promise in verse 17. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Not you'll be blessed if you come to church and learn about it. You'll be blessed if you actually do it. Now let me just tell you, that's clarity. See, no fog whatsoever there. It's just as clear as a bell. Jesus says, you don't want to just learn about it. Where'd you go? You want to just do it. Now, let me just say this. Every once in a while in our culture, we get to observe, we get to watch someone as they get clarity on an issue, and then they take a stand on that issue. Let me give you a couple examples. During the Civil Rights Movement, there was an individual by the name of Dr. Martin Luther King 
that came on the scene. And he stood up and said, you know what? It's just wrong to treat a person a certain way based on the color of their skin. That makes no sense whatsoever. It's just wrong. But if you lived around that time, you know there were all kinds of conversations. There were all kinds of debates in our society. But it was a very clear, it was a very compelling message. And eventually our nation rallied around that message. And as a result, incredible changes have taken place in America as it relates to prejudice and racism. Now let's just be clear. We're nowhere near where we should be. But thanks to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., we're moving in the right direction. But I'm telling you, and I, I remember the 60s and I remember the 70s, if you study the early days of the civil rights movement, it's amazing how many smart people, how many intelligent people supported racism. And they sat around and they discussed it and they talked about it and they defended it and they formed focus groups. But it took someone with clarity and someone with courage to address the issue to finally begin to bring about change in our nation. We saw this again from President Bush after 9-11. I'll never forget when President Bush did a national news conference and he stared into a camera and he spoke to an American group of people. Our hearts were crushed and our minds were all over the place. And this is what he said. He says, there are bad guys and there are good guys and the good guys must defeat the bad guys. I'm telling you, that's clarity. But do you remember, if you lived back then, do you remember all the pushback? Do you remember the debate? Do you remember all the talking heads on TV, people saying, well, you know, the president is categorizing. The president is moralizing. He, he's, he's labeling. Maybe they're not bad people. Maybe they're just misunderstood. In fact, maybe we brought this on ourselves. Maybe we caused the problem. But President Bush, no, no, no. He stood up and made it very clear. There are bad guys. There are good guys. Good guys need to defeat the bad guys. There was clarity in the midst of that discussion. And if you remember back in those days, it galvanized our nation. He spoke clarity and culture change. See, that's what culture changers do. In the same way, I'm telling you, there is a desperate need in our culture for men, for women, for students who are willing to say what needs to be said and then are willing to do what needs to be done because, see, what happens is if we don't do that, we have no clarity. And when we lose clarity, we lose urgency. And when we lose urgency, we don't do anything. And we want to do anything, culture never changes. Now understand, Jesus was one of those kinds of people. And that's why it is so much fun to read the Gospels. I mean, if you like to read the Bible, there's just something that keeps pulling us back to the books like Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, the, the accounts of Jesus' life on this earth. And it's because, you know what? Jesus just said what needed to be said. And it really got under people's skin. I mean, it bothered them. For example, if you were a religious person in the first century hanging around Jesus, but you weren't a generous person, you didn't want to be around Jesus. Because I'm telling you, read the Gospels. Jesus talked about money in a way that just made everybody cringe. Or if you were a religious person and you were trying to manipulate the law of God, in other words, you, you, know, you were trying to kind of keep God in your back pocket, yet at the same time, do whatever you wanted to do. Jesus would just say the most irritating things. Yet, at the same time, while he's saying these things, he draws this incredible following because there was a need in that culture for that kind of clarity. I want you to see an example of it this weekend. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 10. 
Luke chapter 10, if you don't have your Bible, that's okay. We're going to put the verses up on the screen. Luke chapter 10, we come across an incredible discussion that Jesus has about this very subject of clarity. And he does it by telling what I believe is the most famous parable in the Bible. I mean, even if you don't go to church a whole lot or grow up in church, you know this this parable. But you got to understand, the parable was the result of someone who was trying to actually dodge clarity. In other words, he was talking about an issue that he didn't want to be too clear because when things are too clear, when they're just as obvious as the nose on your face, you have to actually do something. And the only way you can justify not doing something when it's that clear is by just fogging up the issue a little bit. So Jesus, he tells this amazing parable in an attempt to illustrate the very point that we're talking about this weekend as it relates to serving selflessly. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. I'm sure you're probably familiar with the parable, but you probably don't know the setup. But it's actually the setup of this parable that makes this parable that Jesus told so compelling. So let's look at it. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. So this would have been a Jewish religious leader. He was an expert in all the things of the Old Testament. By the way, let me just say this about Jesus. When Jesus knew he was in a situation where he was being tested, in other words, when he knew that someone came up to talk to him, not to learn from him, but to test him, or maybe try to paint him into a corner, or to try to trap him in something, guess what? He never, ever answered their question directly. In fact, if you read the Gospels, he basically told them what they essentially already knew. Because he knew they weren't really there to learn anything. He knew that they were there to test him. And so that's why, you know, sometimes when you're reading the Gospels and someone will ask Jesus a question, that's why his, his questions, his answers at times, they seem to be so confusing. But you have to remember in those scenarios, he always answered based on the motivation of the person, the heart of the person that was asking the question. So this teacher, this expert of the law, he shows up to test Jesus in the regards to just how much Jesus really understood the Old Testament. Good luck with that, right? And it was because, see, people are starting to follow Jesus, and people are starting to follow Jesus because of his clarity. So understand, this expert in the law, his motivation is to ask Jesus a question in front of all of his audience and hopefully embarrass Jesus in front of the crowd. So it says in verse 25, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, let me just tell you something about this guy. This man assumed he had eternal life. I'm sure the crowd around Jesus that they knew this man, and they assumed that he had eternal life. In fact, I'm guaranteeing you that everybody who knew this man, who was an expert in the Old Testament, assumed he had eternal life. After all, he was a teacher. He was an expert in the law. But he wasn't really asking for information. He was simply testing Jesus to see what Jesus would say. And again, his hope was to discredit Jesus because, after all, he's thinking, I'm the expert in the law. This guy... He's just a carpenter, right? This shouldn't be too difficult. So Jesus asked him a question in verse 26. What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? In other words, you tell me what you think you have to do to have eternal life. Verse 27, he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
And Jesus very wisely responds in verse 28. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. It's almost like Jesus had an attitude. It's almost like Jesus says, yeah, sounds good to me. And then he goes right back to teaching the crowd that had gathered that day. It's kind of like drop the mic, see crest out. I mean, that's kind of what's going on here with Jesus and this guy. But now this guy's standing here and he's feeling just a little bit stupid because he has set the standard. He set the bar pretty high. I mean, he just said publicly in front of all of these witnesses that the way you have eternal life is by first loving God. Okay, we get that. But then he said, and by loving your neighbor as yourself. And you know what he's thinking now? He's standing there with his face hanging out thinking, wow, love your neighbor as yourself. That's a little open-ended. That's a little vague. We should probably Discuss what that actually means, to love your neighbor as yourself. We, we, should, we should socialize this idea. We, sh we should talk about it a little bit. So what does he do? He turns on his personal fog machine. Because love your neighbor as yourself, that's just way too clear. It can't be that black and white. So look what it says in verse 29. He wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who, and I think probably implied here, who exactly is my neighbor? right? And then just set back. Now understand, this word neighbor in the Hebrew, it simply means one who is close. Now the Jews took this, and, and they took this verse to mean other Jews. That's your neighbor. The Pharisees, who were the religious leaders, they narrowed it down to those who were righteous and acceptable to God. That's who my neighbor's going to be. And then there was another group that had interpreted neighbor to mean, hey, whatever you want it to mean. A neighbor is whoever I say my neighbor is, and if I don't like you, then you're not my neighbor, therefore I don't have to love you. See, how, how convenient is that? So everybody's just kind of applying this verse any way that they want to apply it. So, so this guy is thinking, wait a second. You can't love everybody, you know. This is too open-ended. So, Jesus, let's talk about this. What is a neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Now, it's a fair question. But this is what I want you to be sensitive to. It's that kind of question that draws us into a discussion that at the end of the day, there's no clarity, so therefore, there's no real reason to do anything. For example, and we'll see this in a few weeks, but I'm not going to tell you which week because you won't come. <laughs> but in a few weeks, I'm going to talk about if you really want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, you've got to get to the place in your life where you give generously. And I'm going to show you that you cannot give generously until you've set a baseline of tithing. And then once you tithe, you have positioned yourself to give an offering or to give above, but we'll talk about that some other time. But see, instead of us just accepting that with clarity, you know what we want to do? We want to go to our small group and we want to discuss it. Even though the Bible is clear, we want, to, we want to socialize. Like we'll say, you know what? Wasn't that just for the Old Testament? right? Well, Mike, if I do tithe, do I tithe off of my gross or do I tithe off of my net? <laughs> See, let's talk about it. Let's discuss it. All right, do, hey, Mike, do I have to tithe to the church, you know? Or what if I serve? If I serve, I'm really involved in serving, do, do I have to tithe? Yeah. Let's just discuss it. 
And since there's no clarity, there's no action. Let me tell you what I know about all of us. We're smart enough to talk ourselves into anything. And we're smart enough to talk, talk ourselves out of anything. And the danger isn't discussion. And the danger isn't looking at all sides of an argument. But this is what I want you to hear, okay? Be very, very careful about fogging up areas where there's clarity in God's word. Be very, very careful. Because where there's no clarity, there's no urgency. And where there's no urgency, guess what? There's no action. So go back to the story. Jesus responds by telling this fascinating parable beginning in verse 30. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. By the way, do you know what I think the disciples were thinking? Didn't the guy just ask a simple question, who is my neighbor? Peter, why is Jesus telling another story? I mean, I mean, I mean, why can't he just answer a question? But Jesus is like, oh, interesting question. Once upon a time, so Jesus, you know, so in verse 30, Jesus replied, once upon a time, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. So Jesus is telling this story. He's telling this parable. What's he trying to do? He's trying to illustrate a point. But his disciples, they have no idea what the point is because Jesus never told the point to the end of the story. And then sometimes he didn't tell the point at all. Sometimes he would just tell a parable and everybody's like, oh, and he's like, yeah, you got ears to hear here. And he'd go about his way, right? But he says in verse 31, he's talking about this guy who's been beaten half to death. He says, the priest happened to be going down the same road. When he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Now, Jesus doesn't tell us why he just passed by on the other side. He just tells us the priest, this Jewish priest, he kept going. This is what we can assume. We can assume that by the time this Jewish priest saw the wounded man, and by the time he actually passed the wounded man, somehow he had convinced himself, I don't need to stop. I don't need to stop. Maybe he was afraid. Maybe he was too busy. Maybe he was late for an appointment. Maybe he already assumed that he was dead. But whatever the reason... It wasn't hard. He was able to convince himself that he shouldn't help this person who desperately, obviously needed help. Verse 32. So too, a Levite. Now, who was a Levite? Well, it's another Jewish religious leader, but a couple of notches below a priest. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. And again, Jesus doesn't tell us why, but he just says this man also decided he was just going to walk right on past this man who's dying, verse 33, but a Samaritan. You say, well, Mike, what's a Samaritan? Well, a Samaritan was the result of a Jew who had married someone outside the Jewish race. If they had a child, an offspring, they were considered a half-breed. They, hated, they were hated by the Jews. They were Samaritans. So Jesus just talks about two religious leaders that walk past this man who's half-dead, but then he says, a Samaritan. Now, you know that got their attention. But as Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. In other words, he saw what needed to be done, and he had the appropriate response. You see, when somebody's wounded and dying and in need, the appropriate response is you, you do something. So somehow this guy was able to see, grasp the situation for what it was. And, and he gives, he responds the appropriate way. Verse 34, he went to him, bandaged his wounds, 
pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii. A denarii was a day's wage. So two denarii, two days wages. You can figure out what that would be in your life. He took out two days wages and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. And the disciples are going, great story, Jesus. But again, who's my neighbor, right? Can we get back to the neighbor part? But instead of answering, Jesus turns back to the expert in the law that originally started this conversation by asking the question. And he looks at him in verse 36 and says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of robbers. In other words, he looks at this religious expert and he says, you know what? You're asking the wrong question. The question isn't, who is my neighbor? The question is, who acted neighborly? In other words, which one of these loved his neighbor as himself? Which one of these three men did for this stranger what we, he would have wanted done for him if he found himself in the same dire circumstances? So Jesus says, you're asking the wrong question. The reason you're asking me the wrong question is because you just want to draw me into a conversation that's just going to kind of fog everything up. And at the end of the day, when we finish the uh, conversation, you're, you're still not going to feel compelled to do anything for anybody. And you're still not going to go out of your way to be inconvenienced. And you're not going to invest any of your money on somewhere like this. It's not going to affect your lifestyle in any way. You can just go on and do whatever you want to do and just claim, man, I am a good, godly person. Right. And it's because this man fogged up what was so clear, what was so simple, what was so obvious. So it says, in verse, which of these three do you think was the neighbor, verse 36, to the man who fell into the hands of the robber? Verse 37, the expert in the law replied, the one, see he couldn't even bring himself to say Samaritan, the one who had mercy on him. In other words, the one who saw what needed to be done and he just jumped in and did something about it. That's the one who acted neighborly. That's the one that fulfilled God's commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 37, Jesus told him, moral of the story, go and do likewise. Which had to twist a little bit because it was a Samaritan. Basically, Jesus said, go be like the Samaritan. You don't need to think about it. You don't need to discuss it. You don't even need to pray about it. Go and do likewise. When you see a need, meet it. When you know the right thing to do, do it. When you see a need, you meet it. When you know the right thing to do, you do it. That's what pleases God. And if you were to ask this man who had been beaten within an inch of his life, if you would have asked him after he was healed, hey, who's your hero? It wouldn't be the Jewish priest. It wouldn't be the Levite. You know who it would be? It would be the Samaritan. It's because he is the guy that saw what needed to be done and he acted on what he saw. See, that's what culture changers do. I fell into this fog thing in an embarrassing way, and I told you st this story years ago, but it's, it's probably worth retelling. 
My son, way back years ago, when he was a student at NC State, uh, Aaron, he's just got a heart as big as the world. And so one day he came home and he says, Dad, you know, he was finishing up his, his last semester at State. And he said, Dad, there's a homeless guy there, John, I kind of built a relationship with. And I told him I was getting ready to graduate and I probably wouldn't see him as much around the campus there. And he was always panhandling. So Aaron said, I only had $40. So I gave him $40 and I gave him my Bible and I gave him our home phone number in case he ever needed anything. And I'm like, well, I'm so proud of you, son. Until one day the phone rang. And on the other end, it says, you have a collect call from Wake County Jail. From, and there was a place the guy could put his name in, John, his name. Will you accept the call? I says, sure. So he says, hey, you got such a nice son, wonderful son, gave me $40 and I was down and out. He says, but I'm in jail and I was warning, could you come bail me out? And I said, well, what are you in jail for? Well, panhandling and you got to, I don't know, have, have a license or something. And I didn't show up for a court date and... I said, well, I tell you what, call me back in about an hour. So I, I called Wake County Jail, and I gave him the guy's name, and they said, hey, he, yeah, listen, he's, he's been in here numerous times, never shows up for his court date. You know, this is like a Thursday or Friday. He's going to be in here over the weekend. He'll go before the judge on Monday. They're going to let him out anyway, but at least it will be taken care of. And you know what? It, it's it's kind of cold and rainy. It was that time of year. At least he's warm in here. He's going to get three, three meals. Just leave him in here. He'll be out on Monday. He's going to be just fine. So he called me back in about an hour. I accepted the phone call, and he said, are you going to get me out? And I was like, I said, no, I talked to him. I doubt we're going to leave you there. And, and, and I said, but you'll be out Monday. Well, then about every 15 minutes, I was, you have a collect call from Wake County Jail from John, and I would just hang up. And then I would just hang up. And then I would just hang up. And then one time, it was like where you put your name in. It was like, you have a Wake County, you have a collect phone call from the Wake County Jail from, and he would start putting messages, get me out, get me out, you know, like that, instead of, instead of his name. Right? So finally, I took his call again. I said, quit calling me. Now, the judge said, you'll be out Monday. You, 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 you do the crime. You got to do the time. And then Aaron came home. I said, son, we need to talk. I said, I, I, I mean, I admire you. I mean, I love you. I love your heart. But son, you're naive. And you got to get better judgment. And you got to develop some street smarts. I mean, there are professional beggars out there. I saw something on the news. Some of these guys make $100,000 a year and, you know, just, just fog, 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 you know. And Aaron just sat there. And I will never forget this. He looked at me and he says, Dad, doesn't the Bible teach that we're supposed to give to people when they ask? And I wanted to say, yeah, but let's go over this again. I'm just, I mean, it's just not that simple. But I had to agree with him, and I said, yeah, that's what it says. And he responded, not in a disrespectful way. He said, well, I guess I did the right thing then, huh? And I had to say, yeah, I, I, I guess you did. But my point is simply this. Again, you give us enough time, we can talk ourselves into anything, or we can talk ourselves out of anything. But Jesus says through this parable, who actually met the guy's need? The Samaritan. All right, then get ready for the big application. Go and do likewise. Let me say that again because it's complicated. Go and do likewise. One more time because this is deeper than I normally go. Okay. 
go and do likewise. In other words, when you see a need that you can meet, meet it. When something needs to be done that you can do, do it. Do you know why? Because that's what culture changers do. They maintain their sense of clarity and they never lose the urgency to act on what they see. So let me just say what I'm thinking, which never really ends well. When it comes to serving, a lot of you have lost your clarity. Because I look around and I see a lot of you that used to serve. You served in Kip City, you served as greeters, you did all kinds of things, but you were going to take a little breather. And you've never gotten back. And if we were to discuss it and debate it and socialize it, you would have all kinds of ideas. And again, I don't want you, I don't want you to ever, anybody at hope to ever feel condemned. But you know what? There are times we need to feel convicted, right? So I don't want you to feel condemned. But you know what? We know it's the right thing to do. It is so clear in the Bible. This is what we do. But you know what? We fog it up. You know how we fog it up? I served for years. It's somebody else's turn. Or you know what? I give. Let them serve. Or I'm just really busy. I don't have time to serve. Or I'm, I'm, I'm more important probably than most of those people serving. Or why do I need to serve at the church? I already helped my daughter sell Girl Scout cookies. I mean, isn't, isn't that serving? Or why do I need to serve in kids' city or student ministries? I don't even have kids, see? Just fog, 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 fog. When you see a need, meet it. When something needs to be done, you do it. So let me tell you some things that need to be done that you can do. Garner, for example, you want to do something that will build relationships. You want to do something that will give you memories that will last a lifetime. Get in on the front line of starting a new campus. I mean, think about it. They, just, they, need, they need truckers who can pull trailers on a Sunday morning to Garner High School with all the equipment that we have to set up for, for the musicians and, and for the classrooms. We need strikers who go in and set up the lights and the sound. We, right now we need three uh, middle school volunteers. Uh, special needs ministry, right now we need eight because so many families are leaving Raleigh to go to Garner and, and quite a few of those families are special needs family. They're transitioning to help out. Hey, you don't have to go forever. So you know what, I'm gonna go and help for six months. I don't live anywhere near Garner. But you know what? It's a Sunday morning. How bad can the traffic be? Or I'm going to go. You know, when I moved here from California to start the church, there was a family at my church in California, and they said, Mike, tell me about it. So I told them my vision. They said, here's the deal. We're going to go with you for two years. And after two years, we're going to move back down to Florida, where we're originally from. And sure enough, they, got, they packed up their family. They had three teenagers. They moved here from California with me. They started our student ministries when we had nothing and then after two years, we hugged, and they went on. I see, you, 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 could, you could do something like that. Say, I'm going to give it six months. I'm going to give it a year. But you could jump right, in, right now. You could make an incredible difference. But even if you did nothing but go, just going and being a part of the energy that's, that's needed on a weekend when visitors show up for the first time, that makes them want to come back. But that's something you can do. That, that's just something anybody could do. How about at our Apex campus? You know, we started our evening services at Apex. We right now need 25 different, we need 25 people working in Kid City 
in the afternoon services, people on the safety and medical team. And I get, that may mean you have to drive a little further to get to another campus, but right, you might be, that's something I could do right now. Maybe they don't need that at the campus yet, but that's something, that's something you could do. Raleigh, we have a lot of volunteers, 40 volunteers just in Kid City alone that will be leaving us to help launch the Garner campus. We gotta backfill those. We use volunteers upstairs at our offices that they answer the phones and they greet people. Maybe, maybe you could do that, you could have a great time. Student ministry at Morrisville needs volunteers. Kid City needs 13 volunteers. Did you know that 90% of people that accept Christ do so under the age of 18? You want to talk about being a culture changer, you know. And you say, well, Mike, that doesn't sound like that many people. I'm sure somebody will do it. Well, let's do this. I like to do this exercise every once in a while. Look to the person on your left. Now look to the person on the right. They're probably not going to do it. So who's that leave? See. You know, we got the big school project classroom initiative coming up. Listen, there's no reason for us as a church not to have 100% participation at some level in this pursuit. We know that by August 11th, we're bringing school supplies. Everybody can do that. There's a list of gethope.net of things that you, you, you can bring. There are 970 spots that we're going to serve our schools between August 12th and August 23rd. 13 different schools, 970 spots that need to be filled out, like spreading mulch, painting, serving brunch to teachers, helping teachers set up classrooms, sorting supplies, delivering to the school. 970 spots. Right now we have 210 that are filled. Now I know you're going to fill them, but I guarantee you, every one of us, there's something on there you can do. Our goal, our goal is to bless 1,000 teachers. Right now we're joining with 31 churches around the triangle to do this. But my point is simply this. When you see a need, meet it. When something needs to be done, you do it. You don't even need to pray about it. Just do it. I love it when I go up to people and say, you know, would, could you do this? Would you volunteer to do this? And they say, I'll tell you what, I'll pray about it. I said, cool, let's pray about it right now. And they're like, what? Let's pray about it right now? That's a stall-tastic. That's, that's fog. That's all that is. I ain't really praying about it. But it just freaks them out when I say, let's pray right now. But, but let me tell you something. Just do it, and God will honor you, and he'll bless you. And you get involved with Kids City or Student Ministries, I promise you this, you're going to be somebody's hero. But do not allow irrelevant questions and discussions to cause you to lose sight of what you know you're supposed to do. Do what you would do, want done for you. Do what you expect to be done for your children. If you see a need, do it. Make a difference. Let's pray. You want to be a disciple? Then at some point you're going to have to decide to follow the example of Jesus and, and serve other people. And that means you're going to have to be willing to act on the promise that if you do that, that your life is going to be deeply Bless. In fact, Jesus even says, from my perspective, I'm going to consider you great. But this is what's interesting. To experience that blessing at some point, you're going to have to take a risk. You're going to have to decide, are you going to live a life of serving others selflessly, or are you going to live a life in hot pursuit of the American dream? And then once you decide, you have to commit, and then you have to stick with it long enough to see if it actually pays off the way Jesus said that it would.
and that's a risk. And so you have a choice to make if you're going to serve selflessly, and I'm not going to take the heat off you on this one because it's one of the most serious choices I think you'll ever make in your life. And it carries with it high, grand implications of what your life and what your future is going to be like. So here's the choice. You're either betting it all on money and fame and applause, or you're trusting that what Jesus said is true. That if you serve and you serve others, you will be blessed. If you see a need, meet it. If something needs to be done, do it. That's clarity. And that's what culture changers do. Father, thank you for serving us. Thank you when we didn't even want to be in a relationship with you. You asked your son to come and live the life that we couldn't live and die the death that we deserve to die. Because you're a servant. I pray that you would just, over time, give us the heart of servants. Not just a church. We need it here. We couldn't do the, have the impact we made without people serving, but husbands that serve their wives, wives that serve their husbands, parents that serve their children, children that serve their parents, friends that serve one another in relationship, not just seerly, merely looking out for your own interests, but looking out for the interests of others. Develop in us the hearts of servants so that we can serve for your glory, not for ours, for your kingdom, not for ours. And we're going to give you credit now, Father, for what you're going to do in our hearts because we're going to be obedient to you. We're going to be obedient to you. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us for this week's message. We are so excited to be a small part of all the great things that God is doing in and through your life. If you would like to take the next step in your spiritual journey, download the Hope app to find out ways to connect, opportunities to serve, and other resources. And if you'd like to contribute financially to our vision of reaching the triangle and changing the world, visit us at gethope.net slash giving. Thank you for your commitment to resourcing hope as we love people where they are and encourage them to grow in their relationship with Jesus.